Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. In this week's edition of Insight, it's a bumper broker banging bonus issue. Just when we thought it was safe to send out the Monday Bulletin, Steadfast announced the acquisition of a majority shareholding in Unison Steadfast. Creating the biggest broker in the world has gone all a bit mad scientist without the long speeches and elaborate rays of killing off the heroes. And finally, we ask if the launch of the most disaster-resistant home will protect my kitchen while I audition for the next season of MasterChef. Hello everyone, I'm joined by Terry McMullen, publisher of Insurance News. Morning, Terry. Good morning. What's your favorite meal to cook? Oh, I'm a bit of a pasta man, but but if I have the time, I, I do enjoy messing around, making something Asian and exotic. The CSIRO cookbook is my Bible. Excellent. I liked the pasta one. It's uh, there's, a, there's a pun in that, uh, but I'm not going to go there. I'd also like to welcome John Deeks, our managing editor. Morning, John. Morning. Are you a master chef, John? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, we've got various cookbooks, Nigella. Jamie Oliver, all the favourites, but um, yeah, they rarely they rarely make an appearance, unfortunately. Very UK centric. Okay, so on to this week's industry analysis. There's been a lot of broker cluster group activity in the last few days. John, can you talk us through what's been happening? Yes, it's been busy, that's for sure. It started with AUB last week announcing the Insurance Alliance, a new scheme which for the first time offers AUB's set of services and systems to brokerages which are not equity members of Ausbrokers. For a fee, of course. Today, we're reporting on the formation of a new broker cluster group for independent brokers called Broker Co-op. And guess what? It's going to supply services to members through an agreement with the Insurance Alliance. And in the background, Steadfast is merrily continuing its expansion drive. This week, announcing, as you say, the acquisition of a majority stake in global broker group Unison Steadfast, which is based in Hamburg and Chicago and operates in more than 140 countries. The deal will see Steadfast start to roll out its risk management tools, London market opportunities and software solutions worldwide. Terry, how significant is all this? I think it's it's very significant. I think we are seeing the beginning of, of quite a bit of change in the, in the broking sector. Um, I think certainly think there's room for a new cluster group uh, since the, the steadfast Ibna merger, um, but I don't think you're going to see organisations as large as say steadfast or AUB. But you can see that that there's a lot of they're adding flexibility and growth to uh, their plans. The the AUB. Um, proposal is a, is a very interesting one. And I, I think you're also seeing a lot of capital coming in from overseas uh, as, I guess, foreign broking groups uh, are very interested in, in the, the fact that brokering, broking here is, is, uh, is a pretty profitable business. Um, but it will be interesting over the next couple of years to see how those, those foreign um, groups actually manage to to carve a niche in the what is a, a pretty crowded market. Well, we might be biased, but our new insure tech section was the greatest launch since the iPod. John, we've got another fascinating set of stories this week, haven't we? Yes, that's right. Um, we've spoken to former Zurich CEO and founder of Ivari, Daniel Fogarty, who passionately believes Australia can lead the world when it comes to insure tech innovation. He says there's more than enough creative minds in our industry, plus a willingness to work together. 
and a strong regulatory environment. He also thinks Australian insurtechs are ambitious to succeed overseas as well as at home. We've also collaborated with the insurtech Gateway Australia on an analysis piece which examines the potential impact of connected devices and the data they can provide. It's apparently going to transform underwriting and enable insurers to identify and acquire better performing risks. The section this week also features updates on the efforts to bring pay per kilometre car insurance to Australia and a list of the latest insurtechs accepted into the Lloyd's Lab Accelerator Scheme. Terry, we've been through some pretty rapid changes in the last few years. How different do you think the industry will look in another 10 years? <laughs> Maybe that's too hard. You might not be around. What about, just, let's go for the next five years. <laughs> I can almost guarantee I'll not be in my wheelchair by then. Um, look, uh, what you're seeing happening now it, at the, the level below the, the, the corporate business, the, the, the real, the mega brokers, uh, some pretty profound changes happening um, or maybe not change, it's evolution. And I, I think we're going to see over the next two or three years that technology is going to change the rules a lot. Um, and I, I think that we are going to see a lot more innovation uh, which will give brokers uh, the ability to be a lot more competitive possibly than they are now. Uh, I think we will also see more specialist brokers beginning to emerge in the SME area um, because that's the best way probably to compete with the direct market. And I, I think that technology is going to give people the ability to, uh, or brokers, the, the ability to, to stretch a little further um, uh, and tune into their customers' needs with more flexible policies uh, and the ability to share expertise. There's, there's plenty of expertise out there, but we are seeing... Strange new alliances forming, and I think we're going to see more of that. Moving on, John, Terry mentioned the uh, mega brokers. Um, the merger that will create the biggest broker in the world is running to in, into a few roadblocks, isn't it? Uh, yes. Uh, as you say, the proposed merger of Aon and Willis Towers Watson will create the largest global insurance broker. And the deal, first announced in March last year, follows hot on the heels of the Marsh JLT merger. As a result of those two deals combined, there are serious concerns about competition in various jurisdictions across the world, including the EU, Singapore, and Australia. To overcome these hurdles, it may be that some parts of the business will need to be sold off. Media reports in Europe have flagged possible divestments of Willis Re and various broking activities in France, Spain, and the Netherlands. The European Commission has extended the deadline for a decision until July, and the ACCC here in Australia is scheduled to release its decision on May 27th. Terry, John wanted me to ask you, because this is a difficult question, and speculate wildly here, is it going to get so tricky that they call the deal off? Uh, no, I can't see that. Um... I expect you, you would have to expect that when the number two global broker takes over number three to become number one, while number one has already taken over uh, JLT, you can expect that uh, the, the regulators are all going to really put it under the microscope. And I think that's what we're seeing here. 
Um, the whole competition aspect of it is something that interests me because certainly in this market, um, I do have a belief that these mega brokers are going to find themselves meeting competition on the, the, the bottom edge of their business, certainly, uh, from some of the, the foreign uh, entrants who are coming into the market, groups like Howden, uh, Ardonna, et cetera, I think uh, do have the ability to uh, or, or intend to have the ability to be far more competitive in the, the mid-market and the corporate end. I don't think they're going to call it off, but I can certainly see that it's uh, it's got a, a fairly complicated way to run yet. Now our listeners, well, both of them, know we like to talk about COVID-related business interruption court cases. But it turns out we're not the only ones. If you read the back page of the AR on Monday, you'll know that criticism is brewing, not only of insurers for turning down claims, but of the whole test case process. What's the concern, John? Well, from the consumer perspective or the small business perspective, the concern is about the time that it's taking. Uh, imagine if you lost a, a whole load of revenue during COVID lockdowns and you wanted to put in a claim. Well, you're not going to get any resolution on that for months, possibly years. Um, insurers, of course, say that they never intended to cover pandemics and that court cases are needed to clarify exactly what should happen next. But um, there's, there's, there's some criticism emerging of the test case process and the fact that the first test case, which focused purely on the Quarantine Act issue, was so narrow, that meant that a second test case was needed and the whole thing the timescale has just blown out. We've even had ASIC saying that they're not happy with how long it's taken and the fact that the first test case was so narrow. And AFCA, in its submission to the review of AFCA, which is ongoing now, uh, says that it would be willing to look at what happened in the UK, which was a regulator-led test case, which covered everything. And in the UK now, you're, you're seeing claims being paid out already, significant amounts of claims being paid out. Terry, what do you think? Was the UK approach better? I don't see that it was necessarily better. I think it was less complicated. Um, what we, we have happening here that, that does concern me is the, the fact that this is all going on with almost complete silence from the industry as to why they're doing it. They have a very good case to put about why these these. Uh, business interruption claims are so troublesome for them. But it is dragging on. We will get more criticism for it. And I really do think there's a, there's a need for possibly the Insurance Council to be getting out there selling to journalists why this has happened and what we're, the, the sort of clarity we're looking for. But I think possibly they're, they're constrained to some extent by the fact that there are so many insurers who have some very, very heavy stakes in this issue. So, you know, for better or for worse, it's, it is what it is. And I think we, we probably just have to put up with it. We've talked about the um, reputational risk associated with this previously. I mean, is that something that's going to become more prevalent? Uh, not if it's handled properly uh, in terms of, of public discourse. Um, leaving it all to, to sort of play out in the, in the courts without actually <laughs> explaining to the world what the hell's going on is, is uh, 
you know, fraught with difficulty. But um, I do understand why everybody's trying to stand back a bit. But it's it's not a good look. Uh, it's a hard one to explain to people. I know. I've I've I did this recently with a, a fairly prominent businessman. Um, and the the fact is that uh, it, it's it's mean and it's complicated and it it it's not a great look. But as I said, we have to put up with this. And finally, after the nation has been battered from east to west by floods and cyclones, what better time for Suncorp to unveil the world's most disaster-resistant home? Joan, Joan, John, what is the One House Project and how could it help? Yes, I may have exaggerated uh, there with the world's most uh, disaster-resilient home, but um, certainly it's a prototype that has some really interesting features. So Suncorp partnered with CSIRO and James Cook University to design the One House. Uh, It's a three-bedroom family home inspired by a typical Queenslander design, and it features electrical wiring in the roof, elevated power points so that they're protected from floods, uh, waterproof internal wall linings and mesh screens that can protect from bushfires and wind-driven debris. Now, there's some pretty fun videos on the Suncorp website of them throwing everything they can at this house, uh, from sparks and flames to uh, wind and rain, and uh, it seems to hold up pretty well. Uh, And as we saw with the cyclone recently in in WA, unfortunately, a lot of homes are not built to anything near this standard and fall down flat when a cyclone comes through. So uh, it's it's really a fascinating project and uh, could could provide a window into the future of of design of homes in Australia. The only problem seems to be that Suncorp has also flagged issues with people's attitudes towards disaster proofing their homes. That's right. Suncorp, Suncorp, along with this uh, release about one house, um, also released a survey, which unfortunately shows that most homeowners would prefer to do things like upgrade their bathroom and kitchen and pay for luxury fixtures and fittings rather than spend that money on disaster proofing their home and uh yeah suncorp says this is this is not the right attitude to have and that um i guess uh, as well as pushing governments to invest in mitigation we need to encourage consumers too to think about these issues probably highlights the uh the issue the industry has as a whole in getting people to accept that risks need to be mitigated and covered hence the industry so terry if you uh, lived in the bush and had spare thirty thousand, would you ember proof your house build a luxury bathroom or stock up the wine cellar and wait for the, this whole climate change thing to blow over <laughs> probably the wine cellar option uh, but that's just me Actually, it's not just me. I, I think that's probably the, the general attitude of somebody who's building a home way out in the bush. I, I rather like the idea of the wine cellar that you could shelter from the from everything as your house above you is destroyed. People in the bush uh, and people in the north of Australia have to stop being so fatalistic um, and they have to start doing much more to protect their homes from the the prevailing natural disasters of their area. I don't think that it, it's, I, I think you really have to make it regulation to, to force people to do these things. It's going to make houses, well, it has already made houses in the bush much more uh, expensive. 
but I think that you know resilience comes with with um, you know spending the money to to make it happen. Insurance isn't going to get any cheaper, no matter what, and therefore people really have to start looking at the things they can do to quote self-insure unquote. Well, there you are. Terry's just announced that we're never going to have a soft market again. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry McMullen, John Deeks, and uh, the mysterious Joan Deeks. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.